Let's pray together. Father, what a magnificent truth it is that you sent your Son to give us life. That although there is nothing that we have that we can offer, there is nothing that we can give that would make us worthy, Lord, you have given freely of yourself. Lord, you have done what you say in your word and shown mercy to those whom you will show mercy. And you have done that to us, your people. And so, Lord, I pray today that we would rest in the fulfilled promises that you have made to us, that all find their yes in Jesus Christ. That, Father, although we are sinners to our core, you have saved us because of your great love. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us of our sin. Forgive us, Lord, of the ways that we fall into idolatry, the ways that we desire our own way, the ways that we refuse to submit ourselves and are stiff-necked. Father, I pray that we would have a holy and righteous fear of you. That in all these things, Christ would reign in our hearts. Father, as we come to your word together today, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. That, Lord, you would use these things to shape and fashion us, to make us more like Jesus. Because, Father, there is nothing else that we can or should strive for that outweighs that. And so, Lord, please speak to us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus, chapter 33. After today, we will only have two more sermons in the book of Exodus. Next week, we'll look at Exodus 34, and then on the 17th, we will go through the last five chapters of Exodus, where it's setting up the tabernacle. And so I just want to put that on your radar screen, that we're almost done. We're almost finished with Exodus and what the Lord did for his people in carrying them out of the land of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And as we come to Exodus 33, we need to remember that last week was Exodus 32, where Israel, in one of the most famous stories of sin and wickedness in the Bible, while Moses was up on the mountain getting the instructions for how God was going to dwell among his people in the tabernacle, Israel decided that they had been waiting too long and they needed a new God to worship. And so where we are in the text today comes on the heels of that event. John Piper the pastor and author, you may have heard of him, maybe not. He once asked an interesting and important question in his book, God is the Gospel. He asked this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends and family you ever had on earth, 
and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever experienced and no human conflict or natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with that heaven if Christ were not there? If heaven was everything you ever dreamed of, anything you could ever imagine, but there was no Jesus there, would you be satisfied with that heaven? In our world today, in our culture, in our society, many people believe that they are destined for heaven when they die. Whether that's coming from a misguided belief that their works are good enough to earn them entry, or through false assurance that their profession will outweigh the lifetime of evidence that they are not actually converted, they would, if they were honest with themselves, answer that, yes, I would be satisfied with that heaven. And unfortunately, if many who are regularly and routinely in church were honest with themselves, they would likely also answer that they too would be satisfied with that heaven. Because the truth is that in all of our dead hearts and sinful flesh, we crave blessings and benefits without requirements or expectations. We tend to view God as a spiritual ATM machine in the sky. We don't have to do anything. We just call upon him and all the good things will just rain down upon us. But when God makes us alive in Christ, our cravings change. Our cravings change. In our dead, sinful hearts, we crave blessings and benefits with no requirements or expectations. But in Christ, those things that we crave change. In Philippians 2.13, it says to us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not just that God changes what we do. It's that God changes what we want. And if you want the same things you wanted before you were a Christian, either A, you're still a relatively baby Christian who is not far along in sanctification, or B, you were never actually converted at all. This is why the scriptures say things like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not to say you go out there and make yourself saved. It is to say, examine your heart, look at your life and say, is this real? The New Testament is filled with passages that say, if you love the Lord, you will be like this. And if you read those things and say, eh, that's a problem. That's a problem. This is the good work of Jesus in us to make us desire him and his ways more than anything else in the universe. See, 
Too often when you ask a Christian, what has Jesus done for you? They say, he got me into heaven. And that's true. And that's great. But that should never be the only thing we mention. The only thing we think of. What has Jesus done for you? He gave me a ticket to the pearly gates. No. Jesus died that we can be united with God and be like him forever. As we examine our text this morning, I want to encourage us all to consider whether Jesus is truly what we love more than anything else. And if not, to ask the Lord to reveal his word to us to change our hearts. So with that being said, let's look together at Exodus 33, verses 1 through 11, where we first see promises without presence. If you got a bulletin this morning or one of our listening guides, you'll see we have two points, and that is our first one, promises without presence. Let's look together at Exodus 33, verses 1 through 11. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, depart Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses." And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So we left off last week, as I mentioned earlier, After Israel's idolatry and wickedness, with the Lord sparing Israel from total destruction. Initially, he was going to destroy them all together, and Moses pleaded with the Lord on the basis of his word and his promises, and the Lord relented. However, the Lord did send a plague upon Israel, and it was upon those who remained after the priest killed thousands of the people for their sin. We're told that the priests killed 3,000 men. No mention of women. And so it was at least 3,000. However, 
because the Lord is faithful and true, even though there is a plague that has come upon them, even though in their sin the Lord has slain a great many of them, the Lord's promises to Israel have remained. They will receive the land that was promised. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment in our consideration of the book of Exodus, and I want to zoom out somewhat and help us to understand why these promises are important and why it is significant for us. Obviously, number one, it is significant for us because we see that the Lord is faithful in keeping his word. Okay, so that is important for us to recognize just right off the bat. But here's the thing that we need to understand more. I've spoken before about reading the Bible with kind of Christ-colored glasses on. And when we look at places like the book of Exodus, where Israel's sin is so great, and the Lord remains faithful to his promises, or when we do, as we have been doing in Sunday school, look at First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, where we see Israel in this horrific pattern of sinning more and more and more and more and more severely over the course of their history, and we see the Lord continuing to hold firm his promises, we need to understand the big reason why. And that is because Israel serves a particular purpose. And that is to bring forth the Messiah. The root of Jesse, as we heard read this morning in our Advent reading. Israel continues to exist because of Jesus. That's the reason why the Lord made promises to this particular people over the other pagan nations that exist. When the Lord called out Abraham, it was not because Abraham was a faithful man who was faithfully following the Lord. No, as best as we can tell, Abram was a pagan out in the wilderness to whom the Lord said, you get up and go to a place that I will show you. Israel was not picked because they were special. They were not picked because they were better. In fact, if you look at 2 Kings, in particular 2 Kings 17, and this is not intentional, Brother Scott, I don't mean to steal our Sunday school thunder a little bit, but if you look there in Exodus 17, there's some other peoples that come into the land of Israel after Israel is sent off into captivity. And the passage goes through, and we didn't quite get there this morning, but the passage goes through all the sins that they were committing in the land. And one of the things that strikes you as you read all these sins that these pagan nations were doing in the land of, in the, the land of Israel is that these were all things that Israel was doing already. They're making idols, they're worshiping these false idols at the high places, they're sacrificing children. These are all things that Israel was doing because they're no different. They exist for the purposes of bringing forth the Messiah. That the prophecies that the Lord has set forth for his son to be born are verifiable and true. That's why they continue to exist despite their sin. 
We need to understand that, that the Bible, in the big picture sense, is about the redemption of sinners through Christ, and Christ comes through the nation of Israel. That's why they persist. That is why the Lord has made these promises. So here in our text, we find the Lord again affirming these promises to Moses. He says, go up from here and I will bring you into the land. I'm going to send an angel before you. I will drive out all the pagan nations. The land will still be flowing with milk and honey. All of those things that he has promised will still be true. But, and this is a significant but, the Lord will not go with them. Remember, the biggest promise that the Lord has made to the people is that they will be his people and he will be their God, that he will dwell among them. And now he's saying, look, I'm going to give you all the temporal earthly blessings. You can have them, but I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to go. And we need to understand, this is not an instance of the Lord refusing to be with Israel because he is angry with them. This is not the Lord pouting and giving them the silent treatment. Well, you guys hurt my feelings, and now I'm not going to go with you. That's not what's happening here. This is also not based upon the likelihood that the Lord will simply lose his temper. We need to understand that as well. Because I've heard it talked about as though the Lord doesn't know if he can control himself around them. That's not what's happening either. What is happening here is that the Lord is perfectly righteous and just. And because of that, he is morally obligated to his own nature to judge sin. He has to. If he were to not do that, he would no longer be God. We're fond of saying there's nothing our God cannot do. And while that's true in a certain sense, it's also not true in another sense. There are things that God cannot do because they are outside of his nature. They are contradictory to who he is. He cannot lie, for example. Because if God were to lie, he's no longer God. You see the paradox there? And so here, in telling Israel he's not going to go with them, it is because I know you are going to sin, and I must judge your sin. You're going to do grievous, wicked things. Spoiler alert, they do. And he is going to judge them for it. And so he essentially says, look, You don't want me. You want the blessings. You want the promises. If I go with you, bad things will happen to you because of your sin. Take the blessings, take the promises, and go. He refers again to Israel as stiff-necked, which has to do with pride and refusal to submit to authority. It's like an ox who refuses to wear the yoke, or like a man who refuses to bow the head before the king. Israel in their sin is saying, I don't have to fear God. I don't have to serve God. I can do what I choose. And so the Lord is not going to go with them. And when Moses communicated this to the people, 
they rightly recognized it as disastrous. That's what we're told there in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, the first right thing that Israel has done in more than a chapter, they mourned this disastrous word. What has happened is that the true weight of their sin has been laid before them. The Lord says, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. We need to understand this. We are not good in any way. We are not there is no part of us that is unstained by sin. Even our thoughts and our desires are wicked. Even the times that we want good and right things, they are still tainted by sinfulness. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 puts it this way, leaving zero wiggle room. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We have a lawyer in the room. She can tell you there's no loopholes in there. It's all laid out before you. There is no part of any part of you that is good and righteous. We are wicked and we are evil. And what we need to understand is that it is only God's grace that keeps us from falling under his righteous wrath. We need to understand that. It is only God's grace that keeps us from being utterly destroyed. And his grace is shown to those who have responded in faith to his promises. Those are promises of good and of harm, by the way. Those who respond in faith, those are the ones who see grace. Israel has not truly responded in faith to his promises. And we're introduced to something here that was alluded to in chapter 32, but hasn't been explicitly said here in talking about these ornaments. The Lord tells him, so take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And then in verse 6, it says, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. These ornaments, is a, that's a reference to their jewelry. Remember, when they were leaving from Egypt, they were told, go to your Egyptian neighbors and say, hey, I like that. Can I have it? And they'll give it to you. And so one of the things that they got was this jewelry. Well, in Egypt... These things were about pagan worship. These earrings and necklaces and all these different piercings that they had were about worshiping their false pagan gods. And so the Israelites, having grown up in this environment and only ever seeing this, are like, oh, well, I really like those things. I'm going to take them. I'm going to use them. I'm going to adopt them for myself. Grabbing hold of pagan worship practices, thinking to themselves, well, they won't impact me. Well, what was it that they melted down and fashioned into a golden calf? Their ornaments, their earrings that they had gotten from Egypt. These pagan things that were used in pagan worship were the things that they used to they themselves jump into pagan worship. 
These ornaments were an outward sign of their inward lack of submission to the Lord. But instead, it showed the desires of their hearts being bent toward pagan worship and their own desires. The Lord has said to them explicitly in his voice from the mountain, do not worship other gods. And they're saying, yes, Lord, while wearing pagan jewelry. And they would defend themselves by saying, but, but it's pretty. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not worshiping false idols. I just think the jewelry is pretty. Brothers and sisters, we cannot approach these things as though they are things to be trifled with. Because Israel did that to disastrous effect. We need to recognize that these things are not for their good. And they're not for our good. And so in response to the Lord's word, in him saying, I'm not going with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And if I go with you even for a moment, I will consume you. We're told that they take off their ornaments and they don't put them back on. And as an aside, I just want, to, just want to throw this out there for you. You might notice there's a mention of Mount Horeb there. Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Why it has two names, I don't know. Why it uses Horeb here in this particular place instead of Sinai, I don't know. I could speculate. I could throw out what scholars think may or may not be happening here. I don't have myself a firm stand on this one way or another, I also don't think it's that significant either. I don't think it's necessarily something that we have to really dig deeply into and figure out. Because the main purpose of this passage is to say that when they left from this place, they left those ornaments behind. And what we're seeing here is the first steps of repentant faith in Israel. They are forsaking these ornaments and we all, but we also see it, these steps of repentance, in how they regard the presence of the Lord. Remember that while they were worshiping an idol, the Lord was literally making provisions for, with Moses for his presence among the people in the tabernacle. He was making provisions to dwell among them. But now, there is no tabernacle. And there's not going to be. The Lord has said, I'm not going to dwell among you. I'm not going with you. All we have now is a tent that Moses puts up far off from the camp, we're told. He makes sure that when he meets with the Lord, it's far away from the camp. We're told that Moses and the Lord had a special relationship where they would speak like friends. It uses the phrase face-to-face. -face. We need to make sure we understand that is not a literal statement. It's an expression having to do with the way that you would communicate with a friend. Because later on in our passage this morning, we're told that no one can see God's face and live. Okay, so Moses is not literally face to face with God. God also doesn't really have a face. I mean, we can, we can really dig deeply into all this stuff, but we don't need to. The main thing is that Moses and the Lord have a friendly relationship that is different than what any other person on the planet has. It's different even than what the high priest will have eventually. Moses has a different, unique relationship with the Lord. And so what happens is Moses goes outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he sets up, he goes to this tent to meet with God. And every time he does this, the people are watching. 
because what they really are afraid of is that one day Moses is going to go to that tent and the pillar of cloud's not going to come down. That's what they're afraid of because they watch for the pillar of cloud to come down, which is the indicator of the presence of God there with Moses in the tent. And they are so afraid that one day God's just going to give up altogether. And so when Moses goes into the tent and they see the pillar come down, they all worship. Because the Lord hasn't given up on them yet. There's still hope. But they understand that all of their hope, their only hope for continued relationship with God is now resting in Moses. Remember, immediately following the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people said to Moses, you go speak to God, don't let him talk to us anymore. You be the mediator. We don't want that. Well, now, all their hope is in this mediator. And so, what we see here in the forsaking of the ornaments and the expectant watching for the Lord's presence, we see these things as glimpses of what appears to be repentant faith. Israel knows they've done wrong. And they are desperately trying to turn away from their wickedness in whatever ways they know how. They're taking off their ornaments. They're watching for the presence of God. They're worshiping when the presence of God does come into the tent with Moses. Because they rightly are starting to understand that the promises of God without the presence of God is not the blessing that they need. Instead, they need Moses to mediate for them so that hopefully they will once again be assured of God's presence among them. And that brings us to our second point this morning, which is show me your ways. Some of you may have read ahead and thought, oh, I know what that is. It's show me your glory. Nope. Show me your ways. Let's read together Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. It says, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not yet let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
in this section, we are given a glimpse of what happens in one of these meetings with God that Moses has in the tent. Earlier, we spoke of the way that they spoke face-to-face like friends. That gives Moses the ability to kind of challenge God in a way. Moses can speak with the Lord in a way that no one else on earth would ever dream of doing. And so Moses essentially says to the Lord, you say you want me to bring these people up, but you have not told me who's going to come with us. For someone who's found favor in your sight, that doesn't sound too favorable. You say that I've found favor in your sight, but you're, you're not really acting like that. And what Moses asks for here is for the Lord to show him his ways. See, we often focus more on Moses' request for the Lord to show him his glory, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But I believe that this is where we should place the emphasis. Because Moses is essentially saying here, Lord, please reveal your word to me. Brothers and sisters, what is it that we need in order to know the Lord more? We need his word. We need his word. And when Moses adds the part about considering the nation of Israel, that, that they are his people as well, he is saying, they need to know your word too. He's saying to the Lord, when you show me your ways, when you tell me your word, I will communicate it to your people. You say, you say that you want us to know you. And you say that you want us to do certain things. Well, how can we do those things if you don't tell them to us? Please show me your ways. And it's here where we see the Lord reaffirm his promise to go with them. When when Moses says to the Lord, show me your ways, the Lord says, okay, I'm going to go with you. My presence is going to be with you. And I will give you rest. We need to understand here That part of what's happening is that the only way that Israel will have rest in the land is if the Lord goes with them. Because if they were to go in and claim this land, well, guess what's going to happen? It won't be too long before other nations start knocking on the door saying, hey, this is some nice property you got here. Be a shame if I just took it by force. The only way in which they can have true rest in the land is for the Lord to go with them. And so in response to Moses saying, you say that you found favor with us, you say that you know us by name, show me your ways, the Lord says, what you have asked for, I will do. I will go with you. But Moses does not stop there. He doesn't say, whew, okay, good, now that we got that settled. He wants specifics. He wants specifics. And he presses the Lord based on his own words, which is the proper way to petition the Lord. He essentially says to the Lord, hey, listen, if you're not going, if something along the way is going to happen, as only you know, and you're going to not come, don't even bring us from here. Let us die in the wilderness. It's better that we just die here than for us to carry on thinking that this is now resolved and you are going to go with us only for us to later mess it up all over again. Because what he tells the Lord is, 
Essentially, if you don't come with us, how will it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? The Lord has said to Moses that part of his purpose in calling him out and in calling out the nation of Israel is that the nations of the world will know that he is the one true God. And so Moses says to God, if you're not going to go with us, the whole purpose you gave us for doing this is now moot. So why even go? And notice what he says. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? When the Lord starts to bring his repeated judgments upon Israel where they go through the cycle of sin and then exile and then repentance, do you know what they do? Every time they fall into sin, they stop being distinct. They start looking like all the other nations around them. Because all the other nations around them have a multitude of gods. And they're all false. And they have idols that they worship or pieces of nature that they worship. And so when Israel falls into those things, they're not distinct. They look just like everybody else. And do you know what it is that makes them distinct? The presence of the Lord in Israel their midst. We saw this morning in 2 Kings 17 where the Lord says something very interesting and specific as he's talking about the judgment that he has brought upon his people. He says on more than one spot, he says that he put them out of his sight. Which, another, which is another way of him saying, I removed or restrained or restricted my presence among them. In order for Israel to truly be distinct, and by extension, in order for us as the true Israel, the church, to truly be distinct, what is necessary? Is it how good we sing on Sunday mornings? Is it what version of the Bible that we use? Is it that we wear enough t-shirts that have scripture verses on them? Is it that we put a Jesus fish on our bumper? No, it's the presence of God. That is what makes us distinct. And by God's grace, every single one of us who is a Christian has the presence of God in his spirit dwelling within us, making us distinct from the world. And so when the church gathers, it's a bunch of people who have the Holy Spirit. Guess what? It doesn't get much more distinct from the world than that. And so the Lord again affirms that he will go with them. But you need to understand, why is he going? Does the Lord mention that Israel has cast off their ornaments? No. Does the Lord mention that the people of Israel are expectantly watching the tent where Moses is to see if the Lord will come, and when he does, they worship? Does he mention that? No. He does not say that at all. The Lord is going with them because of his knowledge of them. He knows them. In verse 17, 
the Lord says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. They've not earned it. They've not manifested it. They've not perfectly obeyed so that the Lord will say, now we're in. Now we're good. You fixed what was wrong. But the Lord affirms for Moses and the people that his actions toward them, his care for them, his carrying of them, his promises to them, and the fulfillment of them are based only upon himself. His knowledge of them. Not them, him. In a few moments, after Moses asked to be shown the glory of the Lord, the Lord says something that's very important. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The Apostle Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 9 in talking about salvation. And he's talking about how there are people of Israel who do not know Christ and Paul is saying, does this make the Lord unjust in some way? They've had the promises. They've had the word. They've had the prophets. They've had the law. They had the land. They've had the temple. Why do they not know Jesus? Isn't that wrong of God? And Paul says, no. Because God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It is the Lord's will to choose Israel to carry them into the land. And so now we'll talk about Moses asking God to show him his glory. In response to the Lord saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go with you. Moses says to the Lord, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And the question is why? Why does Moses ask that question right here? Is it because Moses craves the special experience afforded to him as one who speaks to God face to face? Moses has an already unique relationship with the Lord. Does he just want something more? Many approach the passage in this way imploring us to, quote, seek fresh revelations of God's glory because they ultimately view the things of God as an experience for them to have. What Moses is doing here is different, though. Do you remember what happened when the Lord revealed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai? They saw a manifestation of God's glory. They saw the glory of God descend upon the mountain and there were flashes of lightning and thunders and smoke and loud trumpet blasts and the whole mountain shook. They saw with their eyes the glory of God. And what it was, was the Lord saying, I am Yahweh. If you've had any doubts, you shouldn't now. 
and the things that I am saying to you are true and good and perfect because I am God. And if you doubt, here is my glory to see it. And so here, as the Lord is again making these promises to the people of Israel, Moses says, I just need you to do one more thing. I need you to do the same thing you did at the mountain again. I need you to prove your presence. I need you to show your glory so that I can know that this is true. And so the Lord makes provisions for Moses to do just this. Not because Moses or Israel deserve any of it, but because of the Lord's gracious choice to show his mercy to whom he will. And so there the Lord tells Moses, you can't see my face and live. So he says, but I'm going to take you to a special place. And I'm going to hide you in an outcropping of rock. And I'm going to cover it with my hand. Again, the Lord doesn't have hands. He doesn't have a face or a back. All of this is symbolism to make us understand what exactly is taking place here. And that is that the Lord is going to partially reveal himself, partially reveal his glory to Moses. And so he says, I'm going to cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back. He affirms and confirms his promises to Moses by repeating what he did at Mount Sinai so that there would be no doubt in Moses' mind. There will be no more questions. Is the Lord really going to go all the way? The Lord has affirmed his promise through this. Moses acting as a mediator for Israel ultimately leads to the Lord's renewed presence among his people. Not because they deserve it or because they're never going to sin again. Both of these things are absolutely untrue. But because of the mercy and grace of the Lord who revealed himself to Moses, even though it wasn't fully. In Christ, however, we have a very different kind of mediator. In John 1.14, we find this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Where Moses could only get a partial revelation of God's word and God's glory, in Christ, we have the fullness. In him, all the glory of God is pleased to dwell. In Christ, there's no half measures. There's no fear of God for his people. We can look on Jesus face to face and not be destroyed. Because it is only in looking upon Jesus face to face that we live. If Moses looked God in the face, he would surely die. But we only live by looking Christ in the face.
the grace that the Lord proclaimed to Moses there in that tent is shown fully in Jesus Christ. Our mediator took our punishment. He bore our sin that we can come freely into the presence of God. This is the true tragedy of those who would desire a heaven without Jesus. It's something that would not even be a blessing for you. J.C. Ryle said it this way, but alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die. While they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ, you give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. Israel understood that the land without the presence of God, would be a burden and not a blessing. We too must understand that the things of God, without the presence of God, are burdens and not blessings. Today, I encourage all of us to place our faith and our hope in the one true mediator, Jesus Christ. Because he is the fullness of the revelation of God and he is the true rest and reward for the people of God. If you lose all else and gain Christ, you have everything. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We need to reframe our way of thinking and reshape our way of life in recognizing that if we have nothing else but we have Jesus, we have more than we could ever need or want. Because the things of this life will pass away. The people you love will hurt you and disappoint you. The things that you have worked so hard for will rot, will burn, Christ is forever. Trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of glory that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that today that our hope would be in Christ and Christ alone. Help us, Lord, to love Jesus more than anything else that the world has to offer. Lord, help us to rightly recognize that anything we place above our love and devotion to Jesus Christ is an idol. And help us to forsake all idolatry. Father, if there are any here who are struggling and suffering in this sin, I pray, Lord, that you would free them from it. Grant to them repentance. And Father, if there are any here who do not know Christ, have not seen the fullness of God, I pray, Lord, that today that you would reveal yourself to them 
Give them a new heart and a new life in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.